Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and it's Black History Month, also known as the shortest month of the year, surely a coincidence that this is the month we've decided to allocate to thinking about Black people. But what is more pressing and pertinent is that we are less than three years removed from the brief racial reckoning after the murder of George Floyd, and yet much of America's financial, corporate, philanthropic, and educational elite is backtracking and backpedaling and the commitments to address the legacy of 400 years of systemic racism in this country. Foundations are failing to follow through on their commitments to move hundreds of millions of dollars to address racism. Corporations are so afraid of the attacks on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that they are eliminating diversity departments, laying off staff, and even rearranging the letters so that the D of DEI is not the first letter. And wealthy white billionaires more recently, such as Bill Ackman and Elon Musk, are waging an all-out assault on remedies for historic racism, and yet completely failing to address the racism itself. So that is a bleak picture, but on this podcast, we look for signs of hope. And in today's discussion, we will lift up and dive into just one sign of hope in California and its leadership, which is keeping the faith and continuing to fight the fight to intentionally focus on and try to address long-standing systemic inequality and racism in general, and the legacy and situation of African-Americans in particular. For that conversation, we were joined by a longtime friend of mine. She and I were DEI OGs. We led protests and marches in the 1980s to get California's institutions of higher education to devote more resources to people of color. And I remember one protest at Stanford, it was 1989, where the chant of the students was, what do we want? An Asian American history professor, one, just one Asian American history professor, which we actually did actually get. Our guest today continues to blaze trails and lead the way in terms of how higher education can play a proactive role in fostering educational equity and overcoming historic systemic racism. And for this conversation, I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? And are you enjoying our annual Acknowledgements of People of Color? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve, I'm doing great. And you know, over the years, you and I have come to an understanding that we have different feelings about Black History Month. I know how you feel about it and totally understand that the total annoyance that it's the shortest month and that it, it why do we even have this thing? But it used to be I've, a week, by the way. Originally, it was Black History Week. Is that right? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Carter G. Woodson advanced Black History Week in the early 20th century. Wow. Yeah, and I, I always say, okay, first and foremost, where we do agree is that Black History Month is every day. Black history is American history, period. But I still have appreciation for the fact that there is a month to extra lift up. You know, historical figures, historical accomplishments, people today, African-Americans who are doing amazing things today. And I also have, I really enjoy how a lot of, I'll call it Black Twitter, just has a lot of fun with it. So there's a lot of humor and there, there's a lot of actual educating people and lifting up that I appreciate because I learn more and more, you know, every year. And I'm still down for it being its own month. And I also really love how it's not every year, but Many years, it overlaps with Lunar New Year. Mm -hmm. I tend to want to call it Chinese New Year, but it's mm -hmm. a it's the Lunar New Year celebrated by a lot of cultures, a lot of Asian American cultures, and so it gives this opportunity to feel this synergi synergistic, intersectional, mm -hmm. and it's like uh, Black History Month, significant Asian American Cultural Month, 
and it's the year of the dragon. I think it's great. February, I love February. It feels like the beginning of spring-ish. We get longer days. The weather, aside from the recent storm, gets a little nice, maybe a little nicer. And, and I just, I really like it. Hmm? What'd you say? Aside from the atmospheric rivers yes. we just went aside through. Aside from that, we just, uh, February in general, I like as a, a month overall. So I am excited that it's here and I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest today. But before I introduce her, I wanted to do a quick plug to our listeners that every Friday you can chat with Steve and ask him questions in the comment section on Facebook. So we have what we call Fridays with Steve. And so that's every Friday, 9 a.m. Pacific and noon Eastern. And so if you're listening to this episode today on Thursdays when our episodes first come out and you're like, oh, I, I really want to ask Steve about this. I have some questions. You can tune in tomorrow, Friday, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. And we will put in our show notes a link to that Facebook live page. And so mark your calendars. You can chat with Steve every Friday. So, okay, with that, our guest today is Lisa Neely. And Lisa is the Vice President of Student Services at Solano Community College in Fairfield, California. Solano is part of the California Community College system, and it has 1.9 million students. Y'all, that's a lot of students at 116 colleges. The California Community Colleges is the largest system of higher education in the country. I think it's just, just something that many people don't know. I think people think of the uh, university systems, but it's uh, this, this particular community college system in California is the biggest. By the way, small trivia, I, when I was a young journalist, I covered this specific community, California Community College system for years for a newspaper called the LA Daily News. So it's dear to my heart because of the incredible work that it does. During her time at Solano, Lisa has worked to create anti-racist learning communities, programs and innovative spaces for students to realize their potential. Prior to working at Solano, Lisa served as the Dean of Student Affairs and Postgraduate Programs at MET Film School in London. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Of course, it's a huge honor. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and Steve and I go way back, so it's really a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And I actually want to maybe just start with a quick, brief popular culture diversion that we were talking today in our staff meeting about the new show True Detective with Jodie Foster. And I was re recollecting that didn't you work with Jodie Foster back in the 80s? And yeah. what was that like? Are you, are you watching True Detective? Yeah, no, listen, I love all of the um, streaming services and all the great drama that's happening. Yeah, I was in, it was when I was in film school getting my master's degree. I was an intern at her then production company called Egg Pictures, um, which was truly, you know, a privilege to be able to have, you know, kind of a little insight into the business. And she was an incredible mentor. The brief period of time that I was there was able to even get sort of by osmosis, you know, some influence from somebody who's just a sort of, you know, iconic figure in the industry, smart and very clever about story and storytelling. So yeah, fun fact. So very 30 cool. years later, are, are you watching True Detective? Yes, yes. I love True Detective. Yeah, I'm addicted. I, listen, I've loved TV ever since I was young. Love TV. So I watch it all. <laughs> Try to watch it all. I, I know we're, we're here to talk about politics and you know, the ongoing civil war in this country, but I cannot, I'm such a fan, fangirling over, you know, Jodie Foster, longtime fan, and, and you're, um, ex, you know, having gotten to work with her. But I'm also fascinated when I was learning about your bio about this um, not as traditional background in somebody who does your work now, in that you have a 
master's in film. So really quickly, because I love film and I love TV too, I'm just kind of curious, what, what was your journey at that point going to film school? And uh, how did you go from there to education? It's, you know, I've tried to make sense of it over the years. And I feel like now it's all synchronous, right? It's all part of the path I was meant to be on. But at the time, it was interesting. I think it was really trying to scratch a creative itch. Um, and a bunch of us, you know, Steve and other folks, we all kind of came up through those struggles and those movements, and some got into politics in different ways. Um, and then a bunch of us decided maybe we better go back and get a postgraduate education and figure out what the next steps were. So I was actually headed to law school, um, and a friend of mine at the time who was getting his PhD in critical film studies at UCLA, he said, you know, you seem to love film. You talk about it all the time. Why don't you go to film school? And I thought, oh, I'm heading to law school. I'm going to be a civil rights lawyer. What are you talking about? Um, and interestingly, I sort of, that sat with me and I decided, you know what, let's go for it because I do, I loved film. I love the power of film in terms of storytelling, right? And helping us make sense of the world around us. So just on a whim, I applied to a couple of film schools. I deferred law school for a year thinking in case film school didn't work out, I had my backup plan um, and it worked out and I never looked back. So I went and worked in the film industry for a few years. I loved it. I loved finding stories and thinking about sort of that human kernel that makes us all who we are and trying to lift up voices that didn't always get an opportunity for voices to be for stories to be shared. So I love that piece of it. Um, but I think ultimately, storytelling actually is the path right of giving voice to folks who haven't always had a voice. So to me, there's a kind of seamless synchronicity between that and moving into higher ed. And actually, one of my earliest jobs was at UCLA in student affairs. So in some ways, I kind of came full circle. Um, having worked in the industry and then really being called to, I did teaching and then from teaching into educational administration and higher ed administration with my love song. My love, my love well, passion. That's what we're, we're definitely going to get into and talk about that. Um, thanks for giving us some of that background. I, I wanted to ask you that since becoming the vice president of Solano Community College, you've been really intentional about prioritizing African-American students' experiences on campus. What has that looked like for you in that role? And tell us a little bit about that. So my role is um, quite a diverse portfolio. So Vice President of Student Services, for those who may not be as familiar, it's a cabinet level position. Really, I'm responsible for student support, all of the teams and programs that really provide um, direct support to our students in a lot of key areas that you might be familiar with, everything from admissions and records, um, financial aid, academic counseling, our wellness and mental health and basic needs services, our accessibility services, outreach. We have a very vibrant Veterans Resource Center and program. So a whole range of things that really are all of the support, um, supporting structures that help students get into and stay in the classroom. So in that role, it's really thinking always about how to be intentional, how to have a focus on what is it we need to do to move the needle, particularly when it comes to the issue of student equity, which I think and really is the biggest challenge in terms of how do we actually make meaningful change and address, disrupt, and really start to reduce the equity gaps that exist, particularly when you disaggregate a lot of the student data um, by race and ethnicity. So in that sense, the role is always interesting. It's never boring. And it's really thinking about how to leverage you know, everything from human resources to technology to funds, you know, both in terms of things that we know are part of the statewide um, mandate and mission to support equity efforts, um, and also just being innovative, the things that I've learned along the way in terms of how to meet students where they are and really provide that wraparound support. So it's been, it's been a really interesting journey. I've been in this role a year and a half. I love it because it affords me the opportunity to 
um, build teams and work with teams that help disrupt a lot of those barriers to access for so many of our students. So I'm, I'm um, remembering here as we sit here that, you know, we met and came of age back in the day around pushing for trying to make higher education more responsive to students of color, trying to be more uh, uh, reflective and multiracial. And, it's, and we met with significant backlash and opposition and response at, at that time including from people who've gone on to great fame, such as Peter Thiel. Um, and, and they created the, they have these like campus reviews, now Stanford Review, Dartmouth Review. They got started when we were actually in college. And a lot of that was in the backlash to what we were trying to do, trying to make education more multiracial. So I'm very curious, what's it been like for you in terms of trying to lift up and push forward um, these initiatives that you're talking about in general, and then particularly in the context of this past few years, and mm-hmm. Supreme Court backtracking affirmative action, the you know dissipation of uh, support after the murder of George Floyd, et cetera. So, how has that been trying to have this kind of focus um, in your work there? It's been a really challenging piece, but I think also with great challenge comes great opportunity, and so I think the opportunity to have both conversations that we need to have, the things that we need to put on the table, the things we need to be intentional about and direct about and clear-eyed about, um, even in the wake, as you said, of you know the backlash and some of the efforts to sort of to, to, to divide and conquer our communities in terms of acting as if you know there's only a certain amount of resources. And I think those things are as important as also an agenda for change. So we have done things on our campus, for example, Um, in terms of being able to address things um, like the pushback against DEI. So we've actually, as a college, we've leaned in further to DEI work on our campus. Um, So we have a a range of different initiatives. We have um, an advisory council to our superintendent president on DEI. Um, Faculty have initiated a few years ago a program called Teaching for Equity, which is working directly with other faculty about how to equitize um, curriculum, to equitize the experience in the classroom. We have also put a lot of the funding that we receive from the state towards some of these initiatives. And I think part of it is a combination of education, but also action. Um, Because I know, I believe, and certainly coming from my storytelling background, that words really matter. However, those words have to be accompanied by meaningful agenda for change and really trying to move at the pace of what our students need, which I think is also always gives me a sense of urgency because every day that we look at the data and it tells us a story and it tells us a really stark story, I feel like we have to double down on our efforts to do better and to be better. So it's been about education for sure. Um, One of the things we've done this last year, and I think it's always important to recognize, sometimes we have these conversations ourselves, sometimes it's important to recognize when we need to bring in um, outside expertise to help us be participants and not have to always facilitate. So this last um, year, I've brought in um, external practitioners around anti-racism work, and have they've done a series of workshops in every single department in my division, which really looked at equity as a customer service initiative, right, in terms of how do we serve our students, how do we serve them equitably, how do we make sure that students have what they need, and how does anti-racism as a, as a principle Um, and an urgent principle really um, underline and and highlight that. So that's some of the things that we've done um, in addition of trying to sort of spread the word and bring more folks along, but at the same time to think very specifically about how can we leverage all of the tools and resources that we have for meaningful change for our students. What's the composition of the, the racial composition of the student population there? 
So actually, it's very diverse, um, you know, in Solano County. So we're nestled between Sacramento and San Francisco. We have about we serve about 12,000 students um, and the population breakdown is uh, right now. It's about black students, about 12 percent, uh, white students, about 24 percent, Hispanic, Latinx students, 34 percent, Asian Pacific Islanders, the Alaska Native, about 17 percent. Um, and our native population is less than 1%, our indigenous population, but very diverse. The county's pretty diverse. I think at one point, Vallejo, which is in our catch, our district area, was like the most diverse postcode or post zip code. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. it's my Britishism coming through. Forget uh. that. At one point, Vallejo, I think, had one of the most diverse zip codes in the country. So we're in a very diverse area, and we're really blessed that our student population is, is equally diverse. This was leaving out that she spent... 20 years in England? 19, wow. yeah. Came I was wondering back. what you meant by the British slip. I was Sorry. <laughs> came back yeah. with not just a bunch of British words, but a British accent. And that's Ooh. what was really crazy for people who had known her back in college and whatnot. That's, that's sorry about that. Revert, reverted years. back to more of a uh, Solano. Yes. Yeah. Every once in a while, a few things sneak through, and it even surprises me. So apologies. <laughs> You know, it just warms my heart. The community college system, really nationwide, is a special place in my heart because I covered it for so long. And I feel that I got to understand the amount of work it does and the, the value it gives, the role it serves in our society and how that story doesn't get told enough. It just is sort of this underdog. Like Many people just either don't appreciate it or we just don't go around thinking about it. And so just getting some insight, even just from your experience and the people like you doing the behind, you know, behind the scenes work to support the students and uh, promote equity is just incredible. And so um, gives me so much hope. I wanted to ask you about um, this program. It's the Student Equity and Achievement Program. I understand it was founded in 2018 and it was established within the California Community College System to close the achievement gaps for students with traditionally unrepresented populations. So can you share a little bit more about the program, how it came into existence, how it's doing now? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the Student Equity and Achievement Program is a really fantastic opportunity to center a lot of the work that we all talk about and believe in that is so important to be able to shift things and to transform the lives of our students and not just our students, actually their families and their communities. So it was in, established formally in 2018, as you mentioned, it was really kind of aggregating at that point, a couple of different programs that were all focusing on different aspects of support for students. And the idea was to synchronize it into a single program that really centered equity at the heart of it. Um, so that's been very fortunate, and I think there's been a, a statewide commitment, of course, from the funding standpoint to ensure that colleges had what they needed to implement these plans and to kind of think through um, a methodical way, how do we actually start to address this equity question? So it essentially comes down to a three-year plan. So our college just submitted ours last year, and it's a three-year plan. Essentially, how are we going to address and reduce the equity gaps on our campus for the most disproportionately impacted student populations across five key metrics, which are pretty straightforward enrollment, math and English completion in the first year, persistence in terms of from one semester to the next, transfer, of course, because a lot of our students transfer into the CSU, the UC, HBCU, other private colleges, and of course, completion, some sort of an attainment of a certificate or a degree. And so the program exists for each college to kind of figure out a local level what that looks like. So we looked at our data 
And we had a lot of wide consultation across our campus, different constituencies, as well as key, uh, key stakeholders in the community. And our, our data told us, you know, the story that we kind of knew, but it was a, an opportunity to really double down in terms of what to do about it. So looking at our data, our black students were the most disproportionately impacted population in four of those five metrics. And we took the decision at the time, which seemed quite straightforward, but I'm finding out is turning out to be a bit unusual um, and unique to focus the entirety of our three-year student equity plan um, on lifting up our black students and finding the ways that we could address both the equity gaps, but also the experience of black students on our campus, creating a welcoming, inclusive environment and being able to wrap our arms around students in a way that would help increase both them coming to the college, seeing college as an option for them, seeing Solano perhaps as their first choice in the area, but make, making sure once they're enrolled that they stay um, and that we retain them and that we provide the support they need to really partner with them all the way through whatever it is their educational goals might, uh, might include. And so we did that and then looked at simultaneously what were the institutional lifts that we could make in order to support this plan. Uh, one of the things that I think can often happen with equity work is you end up with a lot of different well-intentioned sort of one-off activities and events, things that you find, you know, on a lot of campuses that bring people together, but how do we actually institutionalize those things? So we took a really hard look and decided that we were going to focus intentionally on black students and unapologetically, by the way, and then also to look at what we could do at a wider institutional level to examine our policies, practices, and procedures. And so when we did, we did that, we came up with a couple of kind of key highlights that were still in the process because this is a three-year plan. And I wanted to share those with you because I think what's been so exciting is partnering with folks to be able to do this work and to kind of think through creatively too, right? How are the ways that we can do things maybe a little bit differently, particularly in a system that just reinforces inequity decade after decade. So the cornerstone of our equity plan is what we're calling the Black Falcon Success Program. The Falcon is our mascot. And so we've created a dedicated program for incoming and newly joining uh, Black students to have a support system that focuses intentionally on their academic success, their wellness, um, and making sure that there's kind of a culturally sensitive and relevant experience for them as black students on our campus. So that's in its infant stages. We've launched it in the fall last year to success. We're going to see how it goes. And the idea is to learn the lessons and be able to apply them and scale them to larger groups of students. So that's one of the things that we've tried to do from an institutional perspective. You know, we've also done things like we're bringing back our, our summer bridge program so that there's a really on, strong onboarding experience for students before they start a semester with us. We've expanded our outreach team to include an outreach specialist who will focus specifically on black student recruitment. Um, we're also opening during Black History Month um, a black student cultural center at the campus, which is great an opportunity to create literally a safe space for black students and allies to be and to be affirmed and to be their authentic selves. So there's a lot of things that we're looking at in terms of this plan, but we really try to focus two things. One is let's be unapologetic about the students who need us the most right now. And let's also look at how do we leverage bigger infrastructure at the college. We're also looking at technology, other ways that we can provide services and provide support to students and also some new ways, right? Because we have these conversations every three, four, five years. We look at the data, it tells us the same story. How do we ensure that in five years from now, we're not telling the same exact story? The data is telling us something different. Yeah, I just wanted to dive into that a little bit because um, 
as we were contextualizing this, right, everyone, there's all this uproar, you know, about DEI and we shouldn't be doing this. We should be backing away. We shouldn't be doing anything, but left out of this conversation, what should we be doing and what does work? And so I wanted to kind of uh, illuminate a little bit the kind of specific things that you guys are trying to do. So on this, uh, this Black Falcon piece, what are you guys thinking about in terms of like, you're trying to make it a welcoming place for new Black students? So what does that mean in terms of when they show up? What are they, what are you guys going to be providing them or connecting them with, et cetera? So there's a few things. I think in first place, we're examining even things like, you know, how do we enroll students? Well, actually, let me step, take a step back from there. We've done some uh, research recently through um, uh, some colleagues at UC Davis's wheelhouse uh, institution and really looked at kind of determining and understanding what is the opportunity in the first place. Because even though we're in, our enrollment is increasing and we're really excited about that because pandemic has you know certainly done a number on a lot of colleges and enrollment's been down, we're very fortunate at Solano that our enrollment has um, been rising and is almost at pre-pandemic level. So that's a good thing. However, who else is out there that we should be attracting? And so we did a research project that looked at particularly Black and Latinx um, high school graduates in our county and what influenced their decision to go to college or not. And sadly, we discovered that about 48% of Latinx males and about 52% of Black male students graduated from high school in our county, and we don't know where they go. Um, they're not coming to college. So I think there's a huge opportunity to do a better job of outreach, thinking about the ways to work with community agencies, organizations, churches, whatever it might be, to make sure that we can go where students are to make the case for why they should consider us. And they can consider us in terms of you know, job training, in terms of educational attainment, maybe they have ambitions to transfer, whatever it might be. I think that's the first piece. And then once they're here, how do we onboard them? What's the on-ramp we provide that is that is a meaningful experience that will give them all of the information they need, but also in a supportive environment. So we launched last year, for example, as part of our orientation, a Black Family Barbecue Day. And that was really just a welcome, not just for new students, but also for our staff and faculty um, and existing students, but also families and community to come see what it is, you know, what's this like? Um, and that was a really successful event that kind of led into a couple of days of summer bridge and orientation and welcome day. Because for a lot of folks, that's not something that, you know, we talk all the time about programs and acronyms of names and all of the sort of higher ed speak. And we have to make sure that we're speaking to our customers and we're treating them, you know, in that kind of world-class experience that they, it is, that they deserve. So I think part of it is thinking about some concrete onboarding pieces and then making sure that during their time here, they have um, touch points, right, with counselors, with folks in our basic needs program, with um, in faculty and with other professionals that will help support them along the way and make sure that if there are issues or challenges or questions that we're able to quickly get in there to mitigate them. And so I think the cohort model of kind of case management is very much something that a lot of colleges have adopted to really be able to provide that wraparound experience. And by the way, we know that so many of our students, this is not just for black students, but so many students, you know, basic needs is a growing issue across the state and across the nation in terms of basic things like food insecurity, housing insecurity, all of those pieces. We have a, a robust basic needs program we've built here that really helps us to be able to also address those issues. And it's everything from emergency housing, transitioning folks to more secure forms of housing, make sure they have the technology they need in terms of being able to access online education. So it's thinking about the cumulative effect of a lot of those different touch points, but knitting it together so that for the students, we're really building an ecosystem around them rather than students having to go to a million different offices to figure out what it is that they need. 
Yeah, no, I was actually, I was in Texas a couple of weeks ago and I visited the University of Houston Social Work School, which is doing this really um, impressive, uh, I guess we are a visual medium. They're doing this actually work around political social work and um, the Center of Racial Justice and their work. And so they're giving me this tour and then they were showing me like the student lounge where the professors make sure that the student lounge is stocked with food because mm -hmm. of this food insecurity reality that people face and whatnot. It's huge, I think, the extent to which, and this is not just for the community college, but, you know, right up across the system. Um, I know certainly at our college, we have an active food pantry. We serve several hundred students a week with our food pantry. Wow. And basically, we now have a kind of a practice where every office, every center, because we're spread across six different facilities, even though our, our, our primary campus is in Fairfield, where, you know, at the Travis Air Force Base, we're down in Vallejo, that every office basically has snacks and food available, our tutoring center, et cetera, because we know that's a huge issue for students. Yeah. Um, so how long have you been at Solano? Uh, about five and a half years. So that was, was that 20? 2018, yeah, 2018. fall of 2018. So that was the year that this legislation was passed. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit, too, because it's like to help to illustrate how proclamations from on high get implemented on the ground. And so like when Biden first became president, it, you know, called for this, uh, you know, racial something, equity initiative or whatnot. But then like, how does that translate, particularly in the context of through a bureaucracy? And then things can either be blocked or they can be embraced and people can run with them. So I'm very curious at the college, at, when this legislation gets passed, when this initiative gets, you know, announced by the state, what did you guys then do on campus in terms of being able to use that to advance these kinds of initiatives? I think there's a couple of pieces to that. One certainly is, you know, again, having the support from the statewide proclamation of also the funding that can, you know, flow down to the colleges to be able to think from a local level, what is it that we need, whether it's um, resources, whether it's personnel, whether it's, you know, supplies, equipment, whatever it might be, whether it's professional development. So I think at the college, you know, like a lot of the colleges, the first part was to continue to think about the work that we were already doing, but how did this new initiative help us perhaps marshal our forces in a more cohesive way? Because so many of these things can often become siloed. And so everybody's doing good work, but in kind of a patchwork effect, and it doesn't ultimately accrue to a, a larger um, kind of um, seismic shift in terms of what we're doing. So I think that this plan allowed us to set perhaps a stronger, more centralized framework to even think about the work and to bring all the different pieces together. And I think certainly, um, so this is the, the plan we submitted last year was our next three-year plan. There's been a prior three-year plan. Um, and I think what's been interesting is to learn from that first outing, what are the things that we can do better? So one of the things the Chancellor's Office did is they initiated work in concert with USC Center for Urban Education. They did sort of a summary of all of the colleges across the system their first equity plan. So this was sort of 2019 to 2022. And they had some key findings that they found in common across many of the colleges, not all, but many. And that was that there was a lack, even though these were equity plans focused on addressing equity gaps, there was a lack of race conscious language and race specific language in terms of which groups are we actually talking about and trying to address. And then secondarily, that there wasn't enough institutional and sort of infrastructure response to what it would actually be needed to make change. So again, the idea that there's kind of a collection of maybe disparate activities, again, all you know from committed folks trying to do good work, but not necessarily um, 
ending up being able to sort of move the needle in real ways. So we took the opportunity based on that feedback to redouble our efforts in our conversation as a college this time around. How do we do that and be more responsive to that? How do we make sure that, you know, essentially in three, four, five years, hopefully we see some real difference and we can point to some of the specific bold choices that we made. And it was interesting as we made the decision to focus exclusively on black students in this particular plan, as I'm talking to colleagues across the state, I'm finding in the last year that this is a pretty unusual decision. Um, it made sense for us in terms of what we were looking at our own data, but I know it was a bold decision, particularly in the wake of a lot of the backlash around DEI and, you know, do we have to keep talking about equity and why are we talking about all of these things? Um, so I'm really proud to be at a college and have the support of a board and a superintendent president who is absolutely committed to figuring out how do we continue to push and really kind of be disruptors. Because if the system is baked into it, these inequity, you know, the, the revolving door of inequities, then in a sense, you have to get up every day thinking, how do I disrupt it? What can we do differently? What can we do that's going to materially change the conditions for our students? Yeah, I'm definitely so heartened hearing you talk, Lisa, because I do think following the headlines, you just get this sense that so many institutions are, are backpedaling and softening and just, you know, a knee-jerk response out of fear. And in some cases, maybe out of, this is what they wanted to do anyway. So it's given them an out, which can be, oh, you know, just so um, disheartening for those of us who have been fighting or in some way or another for advancement and to see um, any kind of regression is, you know, can be really hard to take, but to know that it is absolutely true. And I'm, I am reading this in the here and there too, that institutions like yours are leaning in and saying, you know, we're doubling down. And so that is really, really great to keep in mind. I, I having said that, are there other college systems in the country that are following in Solano's footsteps, uh, making similar efforts in equity. Have you, has your institution found itself as a type of model? Uh, what other examples do you know of that are, you know, others doing similar work out there? Well, I hope that it's spreading. You know, I think one of the things that does give me hope is the years, there's a whole generation of educational leaders who are coming into um, their own as, you know, deans, as vice presidents, as presidents as chancellors who are taking up that sort of unapologetic approach to equity and really centering it in a real way. Because, you know, there's a lot of lip service, as we know, and of course, even the backlash, even for folks who feel, you know, in, in, in word rather than deed that they want to commit are starting to sort of reconsider. I think it's really important and brave to actually say these things. It's an act, you know, it's in a sense, its own act of defiance. So I'm very heartened by a lot of my colleagues across the state who are leaning into this work, um, even when it's difficult, even when there are the naysayers. I think that's really important. One of the, and it's interesting too, with our equity plan and with some of the other pieces, you know, we are becoming, I think, a bit of a beacon, which I think is, is again, intentional. And I think we're proud to be able to share work and partner with folks and be able to say, yeah, let's have these conversations and be a thought partner on how we can do better. Um, one of the examples uh, we have done recently is working with an organization called Along Talk, and we're the first community college on the West Coast to, I think we're the first college to work with this organization that basically their plan is to, to put an anti-racist at every dinner table in America. So the idea is really, how do you have the uncomfortable conversations about race? So I highly recommend, and I've told my colleagues, you need to hook up with these folks. They're experts at what they do. They've come into our college 
recently to run some workshops. We're going to continue to work with them. So I think part of it is knowing, you know, how do we partner with folks who are helping to do the work and can help bolster our understanding and help, you know, because it's a long distance race, right? It's not a sprint. So I think that's something that um, we try to do. So I'm hoping that, you know, as time goes on, where more folks are hearing about what we do, we're also sharing and learning from other colleges, doing some really interesting innovative work. We've had colleges now reaching out to us about our basic needs program because they're hearing that the way that we have integrated, you know, mental health, wellness, uh, food insecurity, and housing insecurity um, into kind of a synchronous piece um, has been something that other folks are really looking, looking to learn from. So it's a, it's a reciprocal relationship, but yeah, hoping that we're spreading the word um, and trying to give a shout out because, you know, precious cargo are these students that we need to make sure that we're supporting. So we're getting towards the, towards the end, but I wanted to kind of wrap in terms of kind of where we began reflecting on the journey and your journey and the kind of like what's next, right? So we came of age in the context of, you know, marching and sitting in around higher education reform. Then you went to films. Well, I'd forgotten about this law school thing until you were actually mentioning it, actually. Um, but, you know, the narrative and being in that whole popular culture communication space, you know, there's the a powerful role for culture and narrative in social change. And then now you're in higher education, you're at this college doing this important work. What do you see in terms of your own goals and priorities for the next few years around trying to advance the global cause of, you know, equity and justice? Who has a big question, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what I'm having for dinner tonight. <laughs> um, but no, you know, it's interesting. I feel like I found my niche in this particular way as a disruptor. And I think it's no coincidence that I have the skill sets from having worked in the media industry, particularly around the, um, the question of storytelling. How do we tell our story? Um, and also actually the part around brand identity, because you know, it is all about marketing. We know we're living in a, you know, a tech age where everything is about you know, quick sound bites. And I think in some ways higher education is no different. And so I've been instrumental here at Solano in helping us build that story. You know, what's the story we're telling to our community? What's the reason and the narrative for choosing us? What does that mean? What does that look like? And how do we make sure that the things that we're doing, the great initiatives and the progress that we're seeing, that we're able to report that out and we're able to um, connect that in people's minds with this college because it isn't a coincidence. Not that there's not a lot of work to do, of course, but I love the ability to be that disruptor, to kind of think creatively, sometimes at 35,000 feet, what would that actually look like? Let's think outside of the box. And I think in some ways, um, my experience in other industries has helped kind of shape that from the standpoint of what's the, what's the interest and therefore what are the different possibilities? What are the different options? Let's not feel like we have to accept things as they are because the status quo is not working. So mm -hmm. I was a big proponent out of COVID. I was like, there is no normal. So let's stop calling it new normal. There's nothing about what has been was particularly helping our students or much of the globe for that matter. So I feel like the ability to always think about what is that story that we want to be able to tell and what are the different people and movements and, and campaigns and, what, and programs, what have you, that help us get there. So higher education absolutely is my home. And what I love is the opportunity to see, particularly community college, because that's the people's college, right? Yeah. This is that's the right. open access yeah. to transform your life, to transform what you thought was possible, to help you realize your potential and the potential for your family and your community. So I think 
the next few years is about continuing to be that disruptor, you know, eating my Wheaties so I can get up every morning and think creatively about how to solve not just the day-to-day problems, but, you know, three, four, five, ten years from now, mm-hmm. how to make sure we're in a different space, yep. that the data tells a different story. That's great. No, Lisa, I'm just, I'm, you know, the, the heroes are really there are so many, you know, you're a hero in this space. I just hope that listeners are really perking up and learning about the heroes that work in the community college systems in our country and this just incredible role that they play. And like you, all the, for all the reasons that you mentioned. And so I just wanted to thank you for joining us again and wanted to ask where can people keep up with you? Speaking of tech. Um, I know, keep up with tech. So um, certainly always feel free to email me. I'm always, you know, loving the opportunity to network with folks and share ideas, et cetera. I did start, um, I sort of revisited Twitter slash X, um, and now my handle um, I think is at Lisa Marie Neely, but it's all focused on higher ed stuff. So I'm lifting up what our college is doing, what other folks are doing. So I appreciate if folks want to check me out there. Um, because I'm certainly happy to keep telling our story and, you know, helping to spread the word because I agree with you, community college really is um, such a precious, wonderful opportunity and we need to continue to kind of keep, you know, keep the beating heart alive. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work you've been doing. It's been an honor and a pleasure to partner with you over more decades than I will quantify for this podcast. And thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's been absolute privilege and pleasure. You can tell this is a topic I'm passionate about. I'll talk to anybody about it, but particularly in this venue where you're lifting up so many important voices across the country, it has absolutely been an honor. Thank you. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or Instagram. You can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It helps others find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Fola Unifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for Quality Check. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, be a disruptor and keep the faith.